Good morning. It is wonderful to be here. The, the last time I was in this pulpit, there was only one person sitting out there, and it was Fred Spano. And today, he, I am happy to say he is the only one who is missing. So it is wonderful to see all of you in the flesh this morning. We're going to continue with our series of parables, and we're going to listen in just a moment to Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, page 946 in your pew Bible. Let us pray. Gracious God, pour out your spirit upon us in this moment so that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable in your sight. Give us new eyes to see and new ears to hear an old story. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Listen for the word of God. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he, Jesus, said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went, down, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put, them, put, put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He, the lawyer, said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. The word of the Lord. So here we deal with the Good Samaritan. This is without dispute the most famous parable that Jesus tells in Scripture. 
Certainly in the United States today, no matter what your religious background, you know what the phrase Good Samaritan means. We might say she's a Good Samaritan and everyone hearing that will know that she has done a good deed for someone in need. We even see it in our laws and judicial systems. There are laws called Good Samaritan laws which exempt you from liability if you try to help someone in a crisis situation. It is pervasive. This is Jesus's most widely known parable. And what of the parables? We've been studying them this summer. The parables invite us in. It, they invite us to explore the characters. Jesus rarely stops and says, and here's the moral of the story. We have to wait for Aesop to get to that point. Jesus talks about these stories as a way for us to put ourselves or people we know in these situations. We get to experience the emotion and the insight of the action that's happening. So let's take a look at the characters See where we might fit this morning. Well, let's start with the priest and the Levite. N nobody wants to be these guys, right? I mean, this is terrible. These guys pass by on the other side. And I have to say that I have read too many commentaries and heard too many times from the pulpit rationalizations for their behavior. Some have said, well, it was a common ploy in the first century for robbers to pretend someone was a victim and when people came close, they would ambush and bring them into the trap. Now, I'm not quite sure where that historical nugget from 2,000 years ago comes from, but it sounds a lot like rationalization to me. In other places, I have read, well, the priest and the Levite, you see, were of the priestly class, and they only got to work in the temple uh, one month out of the year. So if they happened to go touch a, the body and it was a dead body and they couldn't tell, they'd be excluded from their work in the church, and that was just too big a risk to take. Yeah, that doesn't seem right either to me. You see, Jesus, as we've heard in several of these parables, remember the parable of the haughty Pharisee that Laurie told us a couple of weeks ago. Jesus likes to tweak the religious establishment. And so when he puts these two characters in the story, it's not just someone neglecting their duty. See, the topography is such that you need to understand Jerusalem is an elevation above 2,500 feet. Jericho is actually more than 800 feet below sea level. It's a drop of 3,000 feet. It takes a minimum of eight hours to walk it if you don't stop to eat or rest or take a drink. And so this was an arduous trip but when Jesus says going down the road, in the Greek text that records this parable, the word that's used is katabanin, 
which literally means to descend. There is no one in first century Jerusalem who would say going down the road the way we might, going down a country road, to mean going from Jericho up to Jerusalem. And so the priest and the Levite have left the temple. Jesus is telling his listeners they are going out into the world. They are going from the temple back into the world, into their everyday life. And yet they walk by with no compassion, no care. And the best we can say for them is that it was selfish self-preservation. I think those of us in the institutional church need to pay particular attention to Jesus's criticism. And what about the victim? The neighbor, perhaps? The victim is completely helpless. We're told the victim is half dead, unable to get up, unable to tend to his own wounds, doesn't have the resources to get out of the problem in which he finds himself. None of us project ourselves into that role. Who wants to be the victim? To move ourselves into that position takes a humility that I'm afraid many of us, if not all of us, might lack. The other way to think about this is we are looking to others or perhaps looking to Jesus for salvation. Salvation does not rest with us. Salvation rests with God and Jesus Christ. And so we have to be willing to admit that we're not in control and we don't have the resources to get it done. But it's not a comfortable place to be. We don't like to be the victim. What about the innkeeper? Now, I think the innkeeper's got a lot in common with us. The innkeeper seems to be a pretty good person, compassionate, willing to help, allows this hurt person to be brought into his establishment. When the Samaritan says, I'm going to, here's some money, I'm going to pay you whatever you spend when I come back, trusting, willing to take over the caring duties, but most of all, safe. The innkeeper isn't really risking his personal financial situation, isn't putting his body in danger. This is where I think there's a lot of parallel with most of us. We're willing to help out. We're pretty good people. We're compassionate. We care that this, this victim gets better. But how much do we really risk? Did we risk the way the Samaritan did? Not so much. The innkeeper seems to me perhaps the best example of where we fit in the story. But what about the good Samaritan? Compassionate, courageous, caring, all the things that the others have not been. And don't we leap to assume this role? 
Don't we want to be the good Samaritan? Don't we want someone to say about us, he's a great Samaritan. Man, he did things to help those people. And Jesus even tells us, go do likewise. We're just following Jesus' instructions. We're supposed to be the hero of this story. But it may not be quite as easy as we would like it to be. There's a famous study that was done at Princeton Seminary by social science researchers John Darley and Daniel Batson. They invited 40 students to participate, and here was the basic setup. They were to give a short extemporaneous speech either on a Bible passage or a theological point. And it was to occur in a building a couple blocks away. They were given directions which took them through an alley. As each student made the trek to the other building, they ran into a man slumped, head down, eyes closed, coughing and groaning in obvious distress. Now, being social scientists, they wanted to set up variables for this experiment. And so, unbeknownst to the 40 students, a survey had gone out a number of weeks earlier asking about their motivation for being at seminary. Some cited personal and spiritual growth, others meaning in life, still others service to other people and the community. A few even said personal gain and honor. This was several decades ago. I'm not sure that applies to seminary anymore. But nonetheless, they answered that way. The second variable that the scientists wanted to test was would it make a difference if they had some notion in their head? And so some, half, were assigned to speak about their potential vocation following seminary. So they were to be thinking about business, vocation, how I'm going to earn a living, what I'm going to do. The others were told to give a brief uh, explanation of the main point of this very parable, the Good Samaritan. And so the scientists just knew this would have a tremendous impact on the behavior of the students. And finally, the students were put into three categories either low, medium, or high level of hurriedness. Those in the low hurriedness were told, go over to this building and wait until they're ready for you. Those in the medium group were told, go to this building, they're ready for you to start. And the group that was in the high hurry was told, you're already late, you've got to get going. As they passed the man in the doorway, of those who had plenty of time, I'm happy to say two-thirds stopped. I'm kind of wondering about the third in seminary who didn't, but two-thirds stopped. Of those in the middle group of hurry, just under half, 45%, stopped. But those who were told they were already late, Nine out of ten walked on by, didn't pause, 
didn't react. They weren't a good Samaritan. And it turns out that was the only variable of the three that made any difference at all. What they were going to speak about, what their motivation for being at seminary, no impact. What about our lives? What are the things that put us in such a hurry that we can't see the pain or the need in others? Let's go back to the characters for a minute with me, if you will. As I thought about this experiment and I thought about this parable in greater depth, I'm not sure we fit in as any of those characters we've considered. Aren't we really the most like the lawyer in this scripture? I feel like I am. The lawyer wanting to justify himself. Boy, we're good at that, aren't we? Rationalization, justifying, says to Jesus, teacher, teacher, give me some guidance. And the question that we ask and that the lawyer asks is, who is it I'm supposed to help? You tell me to be a neighbor, who is my neighbor? This is the question the lawyer asks to justify. And I feel like that's reflected in my life. Do I help the panhandler on the street in Philadelphia as I walk by? Who is it I'm supposed to stop and help? And yet to even frame the question that way is to proceed from a place of incredible privilege. Think about it. When we ask who is our neighbor, we're saying, to whom should we give some portion of our skill or resources or even love? I think Jesus tells this parable not just as a model for personal conduct, but as a challenge to what our priorities are. What are the things that consume us, our own schedule, we talk about being so booked up, we say, I don't have the bandwidth to take on one more thing. I know everybody's life has been that way in pandemic. We've been turned upside down. It's hard to have the bandwidth, sometimes figuratively, sometimes literally. But it may be career, it may be family, it may be school. I just see so many people these days who feel like they don't have one extra moment for relaxation or repose or yes helping someone in need i think jesus is telling this parable to ask us where do we need to stop or what do we need to stop whose wounds do we need to bind up who is my neighbor, the lawyer asked Jesus. To whom should I give aid? And yet Jesus never says the victim lying by the side of the road is the neighbor. Jesus tells us to be 
the neighbor, to anyone who might need aid or comfort. It could be a friend at school who's having a bad day. It could be a co-worker who's struggling with an issue. Your brother, your sister, and yes, the guy on the street who's asking for a dollar. Jesus asks us if we will be the neighbor. Presbyterian minister Fred Rogers, known to millions as Mr. Rogers on PBS, preached kindness and compassion in all things. You could probably sing with me, won't you be my neighbor? And now it's probably gonna be stuck in your head for the rest of the afternoon. But Fred Rogers never intended that to mean who will be a victim. Fred Rogers never asked that as to mean who is in need. No, he asked that question because he was saying, who will be the one who will show mercy? Who will be the one who will show compassion? Will you be my neighbor, he would ask. Jesus asks, who was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The lawyer responds, the one who showed him mercy. And the question for all of us now is, are we willing to be a neighbor? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And now let us pray. God of all creation, our eyes are set on you this day. But too often we keep our eyes down. We keep our eyes locked on just our next steps instead of where you would have us go, instead of the gifts and blessings that you surround us with, instead of our neighbor who has been robbed or is in need of security or grace or food or an ear. Our excuses roll off the tongue. Our intentions fall short. Our fears win the day. Our eyes droop with the fatigue of daily life, the rush and the noise of destruction within the streets and shadows of the world distract us to the point that we forget you were even in those places. But the psalmist reminds us that the locusts sing your praises, and so this day we stop to listen. The birds, they shout alleluia, and so we join their chorus. The ripples of the water edge are set to the rhythm of your tapping fingers, and this day we keep the beat. Only in your Sabbath and our rest do we come to know that you neither rest nor slumber. Help us to be intentional in our Sabbath keeping as we try to reclaim our patterns of worship and prayer. Help us to be bold and courageous in our proclamation of the gospel. You are our keeper. For bustling morning households and transitions to schools and colleges and preschools, even in the midst of uncertainty, Give us confidence and security. You will keep our going out. For teachers and drivers and new friends and first times and fresh starts. For anxious parents who struggle to let go or to love their children just as you created them to be. You will keep our lives. For children around the world with brilliant minds and shining spirits 
who have lost access to education or housing or food stability or even safety. We trust you who will keep protect our coming in, but we also beg you to protect their coming and their going as well. Especially this day, we pray for families in Afghanistan and Haiti, for the community of Montclair Elementary, for their partnerships of community and faith. We pray for their families and the work of the year to come. For those among our community who are weary, forlorn, strung out, cynical, or lonely. For those who grieve and those who navigate illness, especially healthcare workers and those suffering from COVID-19. Be in our fellowship. Help us to move beyond comfortable concern toward radical and risky love. Dare we whisper it, O Lord. Make us like the Samaritan. Lord, reorder our steps. Lord, make us like the neighbor. We ask this in the name of your Son who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Friends, discipleship looks differently to different people at different seasons of life. So our question this morning is, who is our neighbor? How will we know them? How will we love them? How will we be a neighbor with all of our strength and our minds and our souls? As we present our tithes and offerings, let us consider these things. And if you are our visitor, we invite you to please consider your offering, just a simple name that you can place in the offering plate. You can find these cards in your pew. And now let us present our tithes and our offerings. And long for heaven and home. 
and I see because I'm happy and I see because I'm free his eye is on the sparrow and I know your heart be troubled. His tender words are healed, and leaning on his promise, I lose all doubt and
Now we pray together in dedication. We thank you, God, for every gift we have comes from you. Our time, our skills, our money, and our love. We have them out of a, your abundance. Bless what we offer to you this day and help us to offer more of ourselves so that all your children might know of your love. Use these, our gifts, to bring about your will and your kingdom of light. Amen. this sanctuary and those online are all neighbors and so let us be a neighbor and not wonder who out there might be one too and now may the love of God the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and the love of Jesus Christ be with you now and forevermore amen, amen.